For years, we have wanted to create a podcast on sexual violence. The weeks of shelter in place have given us the opportunity to do so. We both teach courses on sex crimes, and for years we have wanted to take this information and offer it to a general audience in a consumable and conversational way. What that means, the commitment we make to our listeners, is that the information we share with you will be research-based, and when we offer an opinion, we will state it as such. You'll get our personal experiences and our years of expertise. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina, and we are both criminologists and sex crimes experts based in California. What you'll hear in this podcast may be difficult to listen to. At times, we will talk about controversial subjects. We will discuss topics about which you might not agree. The topic matter can be challenging and triggering for some. It is okay to turn this off, walk away, or listen in short chunks. Sexual violence and abuse elicits emotions that cloud our ability to make sound judgments and policy. We are here to journey with you to get beyond fear. Welcome to our first episode of Beyond Fear. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. We'd like to remind you that this podcast, and this episode in particular, includes candid conversation around sexual violence. If this is a difficult topic for you, or you believe it might be, don't listen alone. Listen with a friend, or listen in short chunks. It is also okay to tune out if you need to. So, on this first episode... um, we thought it would be a good idea to talk to you all a little bit about how we met. Uh, you know, this podcast is really a labor of love and uh, comes from a friendship that Alexa and I built over a really short period of time. You know, it's we've only uh, known each other for a couple of years. And in that time, we have been collaborators and colleagues. We have written together. Um, but all of that stemmed from this really deep, meaningful friendship forged from similar circumstances and just connections in our life that I think if we hadn't lived it this way would seem so far-fetched. And so maybe, Alexa, you can talk a little bit about that first day that we met. Sure. So uh, also, it's it's just a unique relationship that I don't share with anyone else. And Alyssa very quickly became my ride or die in many different contexts and circumstances. But um, we originally met uh, because I was moving from Seattle, Washington to Tacoma and posted this on Facebook. And a friend of mine said, oh, my gosh, you're moving to Tacoma. You have to meet Alyssa Ackerman. You two will love each other. And people do that a lot. And usually I typically ignore it, but I was hearing this name Ackerman. Why does this name sound so familiar? And I realized, oh my gosh, this is the Alyssa Ackerman that I had cited all throughout my dissertation research. And so I nervously contacted Alyssa and met her at a local coffee shop in Tacoma. And the rest, as they say, as cheesy as that is, is history. So we hit it off right away. 
and just learned through every time we spoke, we learned that there was another way that our lives intersected. And so, you know, this collaboration exists on many different planes, and this is just another way to work together. And this is a passion that we both have is to bring sort of our story as a way to communicate about sexual violence outside of the academic realm. You know, and it's so interesting. I remember that day when we were meeting in Tacoma and I was sitting there thinking, Sardina, Sardina, why do I know that name? And I had like quite literally just finished reading your dissertation because we are both members of an organization that was giving out an award that you had applied for. And so your name was was really familiar. And I think from that first meeting, as you kind of said already, there were so many ways that our lives intersected from, you know, having roots in New York and having family in South Florida, which is where I grew up, uh, even to the the year that our assaults took place. So one of the things that's unique about Alexa and I is that as far as we know, we are the only two sex crimes experts in the country who are also public survivors of sexual violence. And as I said, our assaults happened in the same year. So we are both in our 21st year since our assaults took place. And so again, just all of these really interesting ways that our lives have connected and we understand each other in a way, we finish each other's sentences. We understand each other in a way that no one else in the world could possibly understand. And I struggle right now to not finish her sentences as we record this podcast. <laughs> That's something I'm right. trying to learn to do is like, shut up. <laughs> but I think that Alyssa and I'd also here feel like it's a good idea to give you a little bit of background about our sort of specific experience, personal experiences with sexual violence. Um, and although they occurred in the same year and only a few months apart, it they are very different stories. Um, and so I, my story begins as a graduate from high school, heading away to uh, my first year of college. And I uh, went to a school in Boston. I was there for about a week. And I went out one night with friends. I came home, went to bed in my dorm. I couldn't sleep, which is typical of me, still is. Walked across the hall to get a glass of water to the communal bathroom. And I was assaulted by a man um, hiding in a shower stall well, with a knife, a man I'd never seen before. Um, and he assaulted me. So I had a, a pretty what we'll talk about um, coming up as well is a pretty rare experience in terms of the types of sexual assaults that happen or the relationships between the offender and the victim. I reported the offense right away, which is also uncommon, and we'll talk about that as well. I also went through the criminal justice process and testified, which was an extremely difficult and challenging situation for many reasons. And eventually he was um, found guilty and he's been incarcerated now for quite a while. So I share some of those details because they'll become sort of important examples as we move through this episode and through others. But Alyssa's story is very different from mine in, in several ways. Alyssa, did you want to share some of your story? Yeah. So um, 
my assault happened, I think, four months before your assault occurred. Uh, I was a junior in high school. I was 16 years old. And I had been at a party with my girlfriend. It was a Saturday night. And this was a party that I had not told my parents that I was going to. And that becomes important because it's one of the reasons why I didn't disclose what happened. So I was at this party that I had lied to my parents about being at. It was the first house party I had ever been to. And this young man who was at the party befriended me and asked if I wanted to go for a walk on the beach with him. Uh, we walked for you know, 20 minutes or so, at which point he behaved toward me as if he wanted to engage in some kind of sexual act with me. And I refused. He had seen me kissing my girlfriend earlier in the evening. So it was kind of a confusing thing. Uh, and when I said no, it got pretty violent from there. The details are not important. What's important is that I didn't tell anybody. Number one, because as I just said, I had lied to my parents about where I was going to be that night. Number two, I had made the decision to go walking in the dark on a secluded beach late at night. It was like, you know, 1130 or so at night with a man that I didn't know. And so for all of these reasons, I thought that no one would believe me if I came forward and talked about this. So I didn't say anything. The first time I mentioned it, I was in graduate school. It was six or seven years later. And then I didn't say anything about it again until it had been almost 15 years from the time that I was assaulted. And the reason for that, and I think, Alexa, you'll, you'll agree with me on a lot of this, is that um, by the time that I came forward to talk about it, I was already in my career as a sex crimes expert. And I was terrified that people were not going to take my work objectively that somehow, because I was a rape survivor, I couldn't possibly be objective in understanding and thinking about policy related to sexual violence. You know, when people asked me why I went into this field, I told them that I took this really cool class in graduate school, which is true. I did take a really cool class in graduate school, but that's not why I went into this field. And then a close colleague and friend of mine, um, Dr. Jill Levinson, I disclosed to her and I told her my fears. And she said, you know, if people aren't going to take your work objectively, they're not going to take your work objectively. And really, you have no control over that. You have an important story to tell. And you have insight into this in a way that many others don't. And so, you know, coming forward with your story will help a lot of people. And so at that point, I came forward with it. And I had sort of a different experience because I reported right away. And after going through, like I said, testifying and sort of going through the criminal justice system as a victim, that's really what changed the course or direction of my career. So I had originally wanted to be a big animal vet, still secretly do, but I ended up going into criminal justice. And so I was a public survivor before I entered the criminal justice field. However, I had direct experiences where advisors told me to not mention the foundation that my family and I had started, a nonprofit to support survivors, to not mention that, to not mention that I was a survivor in general, that it would be a detriment to my credibility. And that was very hurtful at the time, but perhaps not surprising, till I met my mentor, Dr. William Oliver, and he 
looked at me and said, you are one strong woman and this only highlights the strength that you already show. And so you should be proud of all the work that you've done. And if anybody questions your credibility, that's on them, not on you. So I eventually made it to the point where, yeah, like, I don't care if people don't think I'm credible. I work extremely hard, as does Alyssa, to be unbiased in all the work that we do. So that was a challenge for both of us as well. So not only was it surviving a sex crime, but it was also dealing with how to live in both worlds as a survivor and as a scholar. Yeah, you know, I think people... I think it's important that we acknowledge that when somebody goes to graduate school uh, to be a researcher, they, we, are taught that we have to remain objective at all costs. And I don't know that I believe that anybody can really be 100% unbiased and objective. I think we all come at issues with the life experiences that we hold. But I think in my case, and, you know, Lex, you and I have talked about this, is that we make it a point to really check our biases hard as we are thinking about the work that we do because it's so personal. And one of the things that was said to me early on was, you know, you're, it's very clear that you are objective. The fact that you advocate for policies the way that you do, we'll talk about some of that later on in the podcast. The fact that you advocate as you do shows that you're pretty objective and how you think about that. And so like you, I am at a point where, you know, if somebody thinks that my work is an objective, that's on them. Like I'm beyond that. I do my work. I know I do good work. I know that I impact the lives of lots of people. And to me, that's what's important because I know that I check those biases every day. Right. I'm always, I always, as Alyssa said, I'm ever vigilant, especially, especially in the classroom. I think that's important too, is to communicate to my students. This is, you know, I'm being objective here. This is not opinion based. And that's kind of the, the basis for this podcast as well, is that we will be sharing with you fact based information. When we share our opinions, we'll let you know that that is our opinion. But we're going to have researchers um, on all different types of topics related to sexual violence come and share what they have found through their years of research. And then that way you can sort of take that information, that fact-based information, and make your own conclusions about how you feel about various topics. So we thought that in this first episode, we should talk a little bit about how we count sex crimes, how we measure sex crimes, because it's a lot more difficult than I think most people would think. And it's why sometimes when we hear different statistics about uh, different forms of sex crimes, that there's often these political debates that happen online and on social media. And really, it's far more nuanced than people like to think. So when we talk about measuring crime, uh, for the most part, and for many offenses, we get fairly accurate measurements through the various systems we have of measuring crime. But when we look at sex crime specifically, we know that the information we have is not accurate for the most part. That is because, for the most part, people do not report sex crimes. 
And that can be for several reasons. Alyssa's experience is a great example of some of the reasons that people do not report. But overall, sexual offenses are the least likely to be reported of any type of crime. Much of this has to do with the intimate, private, and and almost embarrassing nature of these offenses. This is talking about a violation of your body in a way that oftentimes makes victims feel very ashamed and... You know, this has a lot to do with how our society treats survivors that come forward. And I think we have seen pretty, pretty terrible examples of this in the media in the last few years. We have seen people coming forward to report against sometimes very powerful people. And the instinct is to attack the victim, attack their credibility, attack their character, And when a young person sees that, oh, this is how people are going to react if I report an act of sexual violence, why would you come forward and report if that's how you are going to be treated? So it's, to me, not at all surprising that people tend not to report acts of sexual violence. I am, again, in kind of that rare category where I did, however... After going through the trial process, which was so intense and in a lot of ways damaging, I may may not have uh, when I think back on it. One of the things you mentioned was that sex crimes are the least likely to be reported. I think the estimates right now are that less than 40% of cases of sexual harm are ever reported in any formal way. And... So measuring the actual number of cases is extremely difficult, and that's compounded by the fact that estimates change based on the data source that we look at. Um, So there are formal reports to law enforcement that are compiled by the Federal Bureau of Investigation every year. There are also victimization surveys. There are self-report surveys. And depending on which you look at, you will see different estimates of sexual abuse. The formal reports from law enforcement are probably the lowest number that we have because so few people actually formally report. So all that is to say that understanding and unpacking this topic is not an easy task. And it begins with understanding why sexual abuse happens in the first place. So for a long time, there was this idea that sexual victimization was something that happened to others certainly didn't happen to people we knew, or so we thought. And we didn't talk about it because it was seen as a private matter. So the only time that we really heard about sexual victimization was via news accounts of particular types of cases. And though we know so much more now about how and where victimization happens today, these same tropes still exist. And so what we have learned and why we believe that sex crimes have and will continue to increase during this pandemic is that the vast majority of sex crimes are committed by somebody known to the victim. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that, you know, these cases of the boogeyman in the alleyway, they exist. They, They are real, right? Alexa, you are a perfect example of that. A stranger lurking in the shadows who comes out 
and attacks you. Those do happen, but they are few and far between. Very much so. And so we, I think that we adhere to this, what I, what we often call the stranger danger myth for a lot of reasons as a society, because it makes us feel much more comfortable to think of things as an external threat rather than internal. It's very difficult for people to, and I'm not saying people like, hey, you guys, I'm saying all of us. It's very difficult to accept the fact that a perpetrator could be living inside of our house because we have that idea of them as monstrous and no one in our family is monstrous. So that really complicates the issue. But if we adhere to the stranger danger myth, all of the legislation that we have put into place, all of the prevention efforts that we have are really not going to prevent really much of anything because it's they're not tackling the situation that is most common. And the situation that is most common is abuse taking place within the household or by someone the victim knows and trusts. Right. It's so much easier to believe that only a monster could do something like this than to believe for even one second that somebody that we know and love can behave in a way that is so harmful. You know, a couple of years ago, I was doing some research on college campuses in the Pacific Northwest, and we were doing focus groups with students about what they believed could benefit their campus in response to or in ways to prevent rape and sexual assault. And the one thing that we kept hearing over and over and over again was more lights in the parking lot, escorts to drive us to our cars at night, right? And it's it's that same trope. It didn't ever focus on where assaults are known to happen in our homes, in our dorm rooms, in our places of worship, in places that we know really well by people that we know. And I think it's important that we define what we mean when we say people that we know. It's not always somebody very close to us, although a lot of the time it is. In my case, this was a person that I met 20, 30 minutes before the assault happened. So I knew him. He was not a stranger to me. I was not afraid of him when I walked out of that house with him. I didn't know him for long. I had spoken to him for a little while before we went walking on the beach, but he wasn't a stranger. Right. And in my case, this was literally someone I had never seen before. So we would classify him then as a stranger. When we say acquaintance or someone you know, it doesn't mean someone you've been on five dates with. It just means that this person is not a stranger to you. And the research actually shows that for eight out of 10 rape survivors, They knew or were at least acquainted with the person who raped them. And when we focus specifically on children and teens, the percentage who knew their perpetrator is even higher. It's 93% of kids and teens who report sexual abuse know the person who harmed them. I think this is why, um, looking at the pandemic right now, this issue has become critically important. It perhaps was shocking to people without a background in this field or with a familiarity with this issue. But crises like this COVID-19 pandemic can really increase stress levels amongst individuals and families. And so right now, the likelihood of all forms of interpersonal or intimate violence are increasing. And so while people are sheltering in place, especially children, 
they have very few outlets to disclose what is happening to them at home. Home uh, can be a very safe place, but home can also be a dangerous place under normal circumstances. But these aren't normal circumstances, and so kids are at a heightened risk. The Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN, uh, their website is rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. And we'll put the link to RAIN on our social media sites and our website so you can check it out. They have reported an increased number of minors reporting sexual violence just in the month of March when most shelter-in-place orders began. For the first time ever, the majority of their hotline calls were minors under the age of 18. And just over half of people who called Rain's hotline last month who identified their age were under 18. Of those, 67% identified their perpetrator as a family member. And within that group, 79% said that they were living with that person. And so as Alyssa mentioned, so the, the majority of children are abused by someone they know. And about 93% are typically parents or primary caregivers. And over a third of all cases of child sexual abuse are sometimes committed by another minor, for example, older siblings or cousins living in the home. So here, it's really important to talk about and acknowledge that people sexually harm others for a variety of reasons, those that have nothing to do with sex. So it's usually because of poor impulse control or lack of proper boundaries the opportunity to do so, the inability to cope with life stressors, or sometimes sexual arousal. So during the pandemic, parents are obviously preoccupied with working from home, trying to teach their children from home and do their classes, etc. Sometimes other family members have to step in and be caregivers. Oftentimes the caregiver has to be the older child in the home. So it's really important to maintain a sense of vigilance around this time when there is this heightened sense of isolation, of stress. Um, it can really lead to um, some outcomes that are, if not addressed, very dangerous for children. I think it's important that we also point out that if this kind of abuse happens in the home, it doesn't mean that the person who did it was a monster. Sometimes children act in ways that are inappropriate and defined by law as criminal. It doesn't mean that they are bad kids. It doesn't mean that they are bad humans. But in times of stress like this, in times when parents' attention is taken away from primary caregiving, that these things do happen. And I think we have to keep more of an open mind around why these things happen. So, you know, over the last few years, I think people have come to terms with the fact that some of what they, or collectively we, believe about sexual violence is not based on actual reality of how sexual victimization impacts our lives. I think with, you know, the Me Too movement and some of these other broad social movements that we've seen have brought more attention to this fact. We, like, we've already said this in this episode, but you are living proof of that. You are the kind of case that people thought were the only thing that happened. And yet we have learned that it's very, very rare for those kinds of cases to happen. 
And yet you're sitting here offering context about the fact that it was very rare. And so I think it lends more credibility um, because you are able to sit here and say, yeah, what happened to me is totally rare. And I can see that for what it is. So I think that that's the starting place for this podcast, that there are so many things about sexual violence that we thought we knew as survivors. And so much of that has changed as we became experts on the topic. Even just thinking about the fact that my um, particular situation in being uh, perpetrated by a stranger as being outside of the norm, I didn't think that when it happened. I thought that this was what happened. I, you know, I thought that the stranger was the, was the danger, like quite literally stranger danger. After I started taking criminal justice classes, I realized, wow, my situation is very, very rare. And why are we building policy based on situations like mine when 99% of the time that's not the situation? So it was really important to look at that. And then I think that also helped me realize, um, and I think Alyssa could, could say the same here, is that there's a value in bringing personal experience to this topic in particular. So by being an expert in sex crimes and also having been a survivor as a survivor, um, we have a sort of unique outlook. And I think there's been more and more people coming out saying, I use my personal experience to lend context to the research I'm doing. And so a great example of that recently um, was uh, included on Brene Brown's podcast, which we're both huge fans. Alyssa, do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I was actually out on a jog listening to um, the podcast episode that Brene Brown did with Dr. David Kessler. And it literally stopped me in my tracks. And one of the things I thought was, I wonder if Lex has heard this. So for those of you who don't know, Dr. David Kessler is the world's foremost expert on grief and loss. He worked alongside Mary Kubler-Ross to develop uh, the groundbreaking five stages of grief. And he was on Brene Brown's podcast because he just published a new book called, I think it's called Making Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. And basically what he talks about is that, so David lost his 21-year-old son several years ago and stopped writing, canceled all of his speaking engagements, like could not, he was like, this is it. Like, I can't, I can't move on with my life. Like, my son died. And prior to his son's death, he had written a few chapters that became the basis for this book. He came back to them after his son died and, and looked at them and then threw them to the side and then came back to them again and realized there has to be another step, right? Acceptance is not enough. We have to make meaning from the things that happened to us, right? It's, there's no meaning in the fact that his son died. There's no meaning in the fact that both of us experienced sexual violence, but we make meaning from that. So as he was grieving he could look at the stages of grief and see, yeah, you know, I'm in denial. I'm in acceptance. But he was grieving as a father. He wasn't grieving as a grief expert. And yet he held these two things. 
And that's very similar to the way that I view the work that we do, right? I can look at something and experience something as a survivor. I can look at it as a survivor. I can also set that aside and look at it from a different angle as a sex crimes expert. Absolutely. And I think it has to do with the fact that as human beings, we can hold two things to be true, even though they seem like they might come into conflict. So I can be a survivor who is passionate about advocating for other survivors, but I can also be a survivor that also advocates for fair and just sex offender policy, who advocates for treatment rather than punishment in most cases as well. So we will be talking about these topics as we move forward from both of those spaces. It's taken a long time to find the balance between the two. Um, but like you, I, I can hold both, right? I can advocate for survivors and be a survivor activist and also advocate for policies um, that are fair, but that also will help to decrease rates of sexual abuse in this country. There is so much nuance to the study and understanding of sexual violence and victimization, from why it happens to how often it happens to the short and long-term impacts on people who've experienced sexual harm, to public policy and law, to best practices and prevention. And that is what Alexa and I have spent our entire careers understanding, is that nuance. So our commitment to all of you is to walk through the various aspects necessary to really understand the complexities of sexual harm. We can't combat the problem if we only do so from a place of pure emotion. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. Please join us on this journey to take you beyond fear. 